You're listening to the Bible 126 podcast. some heavy material tonight. Uh, We've been through some pretty wild material, but tonight is some fairly serious stuff. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we just praise you for who you are, and we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can assemble to study your word in peace and without persecution. We recognize, Father, that there are many throughout the world that cannot do what we're doing here tonight. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray, Father, that your spirit would overrule all things, that you would open our lives and hearts to your word and your word to our lives so that in all these things we might experience the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of him. As we commit this evening and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we are entering chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And strangely enough, this chapter is at least indicative of the major division or divisive issue in the Christian community. This strange thing called the millennium. Um, Obviously, you know, we've been following the outline that John gives us in Revelation chapter 1 to write the things which he had seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be metatauta after these things. The vision of Christ was what he had seen by then. The things which are were the seven churches. And I'll remind you once again that if you're going back through the book, remember that chapters 2 and 3 are the most important for you and me in this book. They're the ones you really need to master. For the third section, from chapter 4 to the end, and we're obviously in that, at, the, at the climax of that series. And, uh, and we've obviously been familiar with the heptatic structure, the seven, seven uh, seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, and there are literally hundreds of other sevens all through the, the book, the heptatic structure. And there's some that we'll encounter today that most people miss, but uh, be that as it may. Uh, this final section that we're in... 17, 18 was, of course, the mystery Babylon, which we dealt with. Chapter 19 was the return of Jesus Christ that we took last time. And tonight we're in the millennium and will be followed by the final two chapters of the book on the eternity and the conclusion to the book. But the last time we took the return of the king, the the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, as we get into eschatology, of course, it's important to realize that the first branch in the road, if you will, the first Y in the road, the first division is someone either takes the millennium seriously, and that's what we're going to be taking on tonight, or they don't. It may shock you to realize that most churches, of the major denominations at least, are amillennial. They do not believe in a literal millennium. The word millennium, of course, milli from the Latin means a thousand and annum years. It's a thousand years. 
They don't take this thousand-year uh, discussion that's in Revelation chapter 20 uh, seriously. Some argue well, it's only in that chapter. That's not true. The thousand's only in that chapter, but the subject is covered in many places, Isaiah 65 and elsewhere. But the first thing you need to realize, if, if you're pre-millennial, if you take the millennium seriously, you are in a minority within the Christian body. Now, there's also used to be, or there are various versions of people that think we're already in the millennium. Uh, in the 19th century, which I should say the 20th century, was the bloodiest century in human history. And so that particular view that everything's getting better and better uh, fell apart, really. There are post-millennial people that have, uh, v- they have various strange views that would fit there. I won't bother going through those. They're not uh, that important. There is a group that is growing and very aggressive called preterists that believe everything's been fulfilled. And... Uh, um, that is non-biblical. There are some very prominent people that uh, espouse that view. And uh, we've talked about it in the past. I won't spend more time here other than to point out, again, that's another f- way of denying millennial, uh, the millennial reign. Our view, as you're pr- well aware, I'm sure, is pre-millennial. But even within that group, there are three different subgroups. And uh, whether you think that the, the rapture of the church occurs um, before, in the middle, or at the end of the 70th week of Daniel... Many people use the word tribulation as a synonym for the 70th week of Daniel. That's unfortunate. It's technically inaccurate. But set that aside. There are those that believe that, uh, that the church, that you and I as believers will be raptured at the end of the uh, uh, 70th week of Daniel. That's associated with amillennialism. Those go together pretty much. And many of the denominations are in that view. We're at the other end of that spectrum. We believe that we take the millennium very seriously. And we also have a number of reasons we believe the text clearly teaches that the, that the harpazo will occur prior to the tribulation. But I mentioned that, so you really, we're going to join, not into this tribulation issue, we've talked about that so much, but particularly this whole issue of the millennium is going to come to us tonight. And it all will derive from your hermeneutics. If you take the Bible seriously, literally, you will swing to the right, chart, chart, uh, right side of this diagram. Uh, you'll be, tend to be premillennial, pre-tribulational. If you're willing to allegorize scripture, if you are willing to uh, view many of these things as just broad symbols rather than uh, uh, any real precision, uh, you'll end up uh, uh, on what we call a soft hermeneutic. You'll be on the left side of this diagram. So anyway, let's just uh, remind ourselves of something that we see every Christmas season. We always see Luke chapter 1 and... uh, where uh, Gabriel tells Mary, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. How many of you have heard that before? About 40%. Well, okay. No, I'm kidding. All right. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. But he goes on. He says, He shall be great and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, that's quite a statement, because if you're a millennial, you've got a real problem with that. How are you going to explain that? The throne of David did not exist during Christ's ministry, and he's going to reign, not just over the world, over the house of Jacob. Has he ever done that? No. Will he? Yes, he will. When? In the millennium. And, uh, but the throne of his father David is part of the issue here. And uh, so God made promises. He promised this to David in 2 Samuel 7. I encourage you to take a look at the, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 16. God promises him, his descendants, a throne that will never end. 
He promised David a royal dynasty, encouraged again in Isaiah 7, the verse just before the famous one about the virgin birth. He promised David an eternal throne that's all through 1 Chronicles 17 and 22, Isaiah 55, Ezekiel 37 and elsewhere. He promised David a political, in fact, he promised Abraham a political kingdom back in Genesis 17. And incidentally, all these things were confirmed under oath by God in Psalm 132 and Psalm 89 and so on. And this cannot be applied to the church. I'll show you some passages why it can't be. And uh, that's one of the strange uh, deviant doctrines of the modern church is that somehow the church has replaced Israel. And out of that comes anti-Semitism. We just returned from a major conference uh, in, uh, uh, that included the participation of the Knesset of uh, Israel. It was held in, in uh, Fort Worth, Texas this recent weekend. And, and many, many Christian speakers were there to underscore the fact that this theory that, the, that the Israel is being replaced by the church is, is blasphemous and also leads to anti-Semitism. And... Uh, but again, that's, that, that's, that's concomitant to be an amillennial. You'll find that most amillennials also embrace this peculiar thing called replacement theology, which is non-biblical. Now, David's throne was the, this future throne was recognized by the first church in the council in Acts 15. And uh, James there quotes Amos 9 in that very regard. Because many people miss that. In Acts 15, there was a council that was dealing with two questions. The one question is very obvious. The question that precipitated the gathering was, does a, what does a Gentile have to do to be saved? There's a lot of dispute among the Jewish leadership exactly what that involved. If somebody became a Christian, do you have to get circumcised? And the answer was no. The way they were used to dealing with proselytes, someone that wanted to embrace Judaism, was they would become a proselyte to Judaism. Most of the early converts were Jewish. When Gentiles started to get converted, they presumed that they should become Jewish and then accept Christ. And that was not the, that, that's what not both Paul and Peter argued to the contrary. And that was resolved in that council. James himself uh, deals with that head on. But many people miss there's a second question that's lurking in that conference. Because if that was true, then what, what's to become of Israel? And that's what James is dealing with when he quotes from Amos 9. and that You can read Acts 15 with that in mind and take a look at that. So and clearly that uh, he, he points out there will be people uh, uh, called out for the Gentiles. And then God would establish the throne of David. Um, we talked last time about the bride. The church is the bride of Christ, always presented as chaste virgin. Jesus is the bridegroom, and that led us to a study of the Jewish wedding, the ketubah being the betrothal, which was regarded in those days as binding as, as marriage in the sense that the bride was to keep herself pure. If she didn't, it was considered adultery. The payment of the purchase price was involved, and she was set apart and sanctified when the bridegroom was uh, would depart to his father's house to prepare typically a room addition. And uh, she would never know when he's returning. She was just to be ready at any moment. And he would surprise her. And that could be an extended period of time. But she was re- uh, required to, to, to uh, be, uh, anticipate his arrival at any moment. He usually came in the middle of the night, big gathering, and that uh, after he, he would, uh, he would uh, surprise her with the gathering. And that would lead, of course, to the wedding proper, the hoopah, and so forth. That pattern... It's important to understand the ancient Jewish pattern because that underscores all kinds of scripture and especially, of course, the whole idiom of the bridegroom and the bride in sense of the church and Jesus Christ. And, uh, and uh, 
I think it's, this is by way of review, obviously. Okay. And the marriage was fulfilled. The covenant was established, 1 Corinthians 11. The purchase price was Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ. The bride was set apart, Ephesians 5, and several other passages deal with that. And, uh, and the bridegroom has left for the father's house, and uh, he will return by surprise to gather his bride. And that's what 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, you know, lays out for us. And we know the identity of the players. We went through all that last time. One of the other things, um, and I brought this up at the conference, um, the Jerusalem uh, uh, concerts, I, I, I challenged people to take a look at their systematic theology uh, books that are in their pastor's library. Every pastor has a, typically a set of books on uh, systematic theology, and they all have the same table of contents, different views on certain things, but they all have essentially table of contents, but they all fail to, set, to, to focus on a topic that constitutes five-sixths of the Bible. It's conspicuous in its absence, and that, of course, is the role of Israel as an instrument of God's plan. And uh, so that's a, that, that, that manifests part of our misemphasis here as we normally approach uh, the issue in most seminaries. Well, let's take a look at that last, uh, this last section. I said we've got, we've got uh, we went to the return of the king last time, the millennium, eternity, the conclusion. And, of course, now we focus in on chapter 20 for tonight. That was all by way of a warm-up. And uh, we, again, we'll, we have the promise that God has given us. Why do we test, why is eschatology such an important topic? It's not because we obviously have an, a natural interest in the future. It's also a test of our understanding of the Bible. Because a sound eschatology will tie the whole counsel of God. But the other reason that we focus on these issues is because we believe we're being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time of history. And uh, there are over 8,000 predict predictive verses in the Scripture on almost 2,000 different issues, uh, 700 different matters, eight, 1,800 predictions on 700 different matters. And this is just one categorization by J. Barton Payne in his Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. Different e experts might uh, categorize them differently. But clearly, the Bible is largely prophecy. And... Uh, the first big division of the road is this whole issue of amillennialism. Where did that all start? Well, there's a third century theologian by the name of Origen who advocated looking at the Scripture as just allegories because it's very comfortable just to deal with it. There are many allegories of Scripture, but he carried that to an extreme, and that would have been fine, except Augustine picked up on that. And uh, he was very influenced by Origen, and he he form, formulated an eschatology that, re, he, that looked upon the millennium as just a big allegory. And you, you, to understand that, you need to understand the political situation in those days. The church had become supported by the state. After Constantine, the second successor after Constantine made it the state religion. So pastors were paid by the state. It's very uncomfortable to be in a pulpit preaching from the Bible how Jesus is going to come back and rid the world of its evil rulers if you're being paid by the evil rulers. <laughs> you had a problem there. There was a thing that we, we would call it today politically correctness, if you will. We have the same lies being perpetrated by our own administration uh, for political correctness. The lies about Islam that are promoted by the media and by the administration. Then you can think of other examples too. But uh, in any case, Augustine's allegorization style of things was much more comfortable. And so uh, that becomes then the eschatological view of the medieval church. 
And of course, the Roman Catholic Church he derives from all of that, and that is their eschatology today. That this whole idea that the millennium is allegorical, that Christ is coming to rule in our hearts, not literally from a throne, etc. And uh, when the Reformation takes place, they did a marvelous job on the issue of soteriology, that is, the, the issue of salvation by faith alone. The Reformation was motivated by the, the abuses of the, uh, uh, of the uh, uh, indulgences and so forth, being sold for money and so on and so forth. So that was, a, that was a heroic period. And millions of Christians willingly were burned at the stake for adhering to that important doctrinal issue. But what they failed to do in the Reformation was to, there's a number of failures. One of them was they didn't address the eschatology, review that. And as a result, most Protestant denominations, the Episcopals, the Lutherans, and you go right through the list, most of the denominations that have a deep root in the Reformation have an eschatology that is amillennial, and as a result, post-tribulational in their views. So you need to understand that if you're going to be a biblical, biblically fundamental, you'll be in a, minor, in a minority position. That was true then, and it's true today. It's been true throughout history. Now, there are problems with amillennium. First of all, the messianic promises throughout the Old Testament are a problem. Not the ones, the first coming, all the second one, second coming ones. Because there's dozens of them, and they have to twist those. The destiny of Israel in God's covenant is paramount. It's the United States' uh, support of Israel, I believe, it's been the shield from judgment, an overdue judgment on the United States. And the day will come when the United States will waffle on that, and that day I think the judgment will fall. It may, some, some would argue it's already starting. But uh, the destiny of Israel is an issue in the Bible. God isn't. Paul, in his definitive statement of Christian doctrine, which we call the book of Romans, hammers away for three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Is God finished with Israel? God forbid. And he goes on. And. Uh, Israel appears 75 times in the New Testament in 73 different verses, and it, uh, all of them, including the, the, the controversial, controversial one in, in uh, Galatians 6.16, all of them refer to national Israel. If you understand the Greek, you can even see where it's there too. So we often say you go from Augustine to Auschwitz, and you'll go from there to Armageddon, and because uh, the anti-Semitism from those viewpoints is rising today. The other problem with amillennialism, you have to do something about the promise that Gabriel gave Mary. How are you going to deal with that? And, of course, there's numerous reconfirmations of all these things throughout the New Testament as well as the Old. So that's the issue. And one of the, the, the pivotal issues is Israel and the church. Israel and the church are distinctive. They're different. They have different origins. The church was born in Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost. Israel was born in Exodus 4. Went, they went into Egypt as a family and came out as a nation. And God speaks of that as the birth of the nation in, in Exodus 4. They have different origins, different missions, and different destinies. And the replacement theology that's extant, see, that's a, in our administration, it's my understanding that every member of the Joint Chiefs and every member of the Cabinet, at least at one time, were professing Christians. That's the good news. The bad news is most of them come from a replacement theology background. Ashcroft's an exception, but I think all the rest of them have a replacement theology background, which means that President Bush is getting bad advice. And uh, replacement views deny Israel any place in God's program. It makes God a liar, among other things. That sounds like strong language, but that's, in effect, what you're doing. 
And, of course, it lays the basis for anti-Semitism. If you want to blame the Holocaust in Germany on someone, you have to include the silent pulpits of the pastors in Germany. The 70 weeks that we study so intensively deal specifically with Israel, not the church. And, of course, Paul, in his epistles, points out there's three groups of people, the Gentiles, the Jews, and the church, and the church being distinctive. And uh, that distinctive disappears, or I should say, that the, I put it, say it the other way around, the distinctives reappear after uh, Revelation 4. In Revelation 2 and 3, you have the church. From chapter 4 on, you not only do the church isn't there, it's in heaven, but you also discover those distinctives reappear. There's 12,000 from each 12 tribe sealed and so on and so forth. The Jewishness of Revelation from chapter 4 on is, is noted by most scholars. It's an issue. It's interesting to take a look, remind yourself, obviously most of you know Ezekiel 36 and 37 deals with the regathering of Israel in the land. We've obviously witnessed that in our lifetime from May 14th, uh, 1948 onward. And it's going to be followed in uh, chapter 38 and 39 with an invasion of Israel that God is going to intervene in, the so-called Magog invasion. But one thing that um, we often overlook is looking at Ezekiel 36 as, as sort of a preamble to all of that. God makes a very provocative point. Uh, starting at verse 16 of chapter 36, God says, More of the word of the Lord came unto me, or Ezekiel says, More of the Lord, word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. One of the things you'll find in the Torah and in the prophets, that when Israel is not in the land, God regards it as a slight upon himself. When, when he is forced to put them into captivity or take them out of the land, he'll do that as a judgment, but it also is a black mark against his, again, he regards it as a sin against himself, that he has to do that. So see, their way was as before me as the uncleanness of a a removed woman. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. In other words, Israel had polluted the land. That's why they're not in the land. And I scattered them among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. This explains, by the way, the diaspora. This is all, by the way, it's not only here, it's in Deuteronomy. Read Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, and 31, the last few chapters. It, the history of Israel is laid out in advance, just in the book of Deuteronomy, let alone the rest of it. And the diaspora is there clearly uh, spelled out. But why were they spread out? Because of their disobedience. He says, I scattered them among the heathen. And they were dispersed through many of the countries according to their way and according to the doings I judged them. He goes on. And when they entered into the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, these are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of his land. See, in other words, they're in a, by their not being in the land, they're in effect profaning it. But notice what God, God's going to repair that. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 21. But I had pity for Israel. No, that's not what he's saying. I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen whither they went. What? He goes on. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake, which ye have profaned among the heathen whither ye went. 
So whether you're talking about the regathering as a nation or whether you're talking about his miraculous protection that he's going to indulge in when they experience the Magog invasion forthcoming, he's doing it because his name is on the deal, not because they deserve it. Now you say, well, gee, that sort of fits the church too. Well, let me go on here in Ezekiel. I will sanctify my great name which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. And that leads to chapter 37, which is the dry bone thing, and we've all seen that occur in our lifetime. But... uh, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms more at all. Now, it's, uh, it's interesting that... Up till then, you say, gee, that sort of fits the church, maybe. You, this doesn't. It's clear God is talking about the nation Israel, which had the civil war, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. He's pointing out that at this time, he's going to bring them back, not just the southern kingdom. We're not talking about ten lost tribes here. By the way, the scripture makes it clear that the northern and southern kingdom were not tribally limited. They were members of all twelve in the south. And the south was the more faithful one. And the south one, southern one was the one that was promised they'd come out of captivity. But this is going far beyond that. This is about their final regathering that we're experiencing. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. This is not the church. This is Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. Who could that be? Has to be a descendant of David, right? And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. That obviously is not the church. There's no way you can twist that around. So anyway, there we are with our eschatological map. We are obviously on the right side of that. Now, the, the, the millennium itself, it specifically was promised to David and under oath in Psalm 89. And we'll take a look at that in a minute. It was predicted in the Psalms, in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. It's predicted in the prophets all through the prophets. Isaiah 2, 4, 11, 12, 30, 35, 61, Jeremiah 23 and 32, and on and on. In Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, we're going to go look at that in detail. There's a description of the temple. You've got a floor plan of it there. And uh, on it goes. So, 2 Samuel 7, this is where God promises to David through Samuel... And when thy days are fulfilled, David, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's instructing Nathan to explain to David. And uh, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established for a long time. Is that what it says? Forever. His, thy kingdom shall be established forever. Not a thousand years, by the way. We're just going to talk about a specific thousand years, but it's more than that. Thy throne shall be established again for how long? Can I hear it again? Okay, good. All right. My, then get to Psalm 89. God says, My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. 
Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. And it shall be established forever as the moon and as faithful as a faithful witness in the heaven, Selah. And that may mean the sun and the moon. It may mean something else we'll encounter when we get to the next chapter. We'll talk about that when we get there. So there we are. It was promised to Mary. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you pray for this. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? We're not talking about allegories here. You pray it every time you do the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. And his rule, of course, the rule of iron, we've talked about that. That's in four key places. Every, and Paul tells us, every knee shall bow. And we're not talking about prayer there. We're talking about obeisance to the king. Let's just, okay, that's all by, those, all that ramblings was a warm-up. Let's get into Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. John says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. This is really a continuation of chapter 19. And uh, I often run into people, at conferences, they want to give me papers and things that get on, on chapters and verses. I, I, I don't have a lot of patience with that because the chapters and verses were devised by Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in the early 13th century. And I don't regard them as inspired. I think they're very convenient. I'm glad we have a standard set of references. But I don't build doctrine on them because many of them are in the wrong place. And uh, there's, this is a good example where this is really a continuation of the previous chapter. It's a convenient break, okay, but it, uh, it also, in, there are many places where uh, these um, breaks are in, the awkward, are in awkward places. And so uh, it's good. As students, I think we should uh, be blind in a sense to those chapter divisions and realize it may be flowing uh, from before, as it often is. And so now we have encountered this term that's translated the bottomless pit. In the Greek, it's the abuso. And uh, I'm one of these, and this, this occurs, I think, seven times uh, here in the book of Revelation. I should have asked you how many times it appears, but I figured you'd probably guess. Um, <laughs> I'm one of these weirdos that believes you can figure out where it is. No, it's not Washington, D.C., although that's, a, the, uh, that's foggy bottom. It's a different issue. Um, there's only... There's an old uh, children's riddle uh, that two hunters found bear tracks, and they tracked it 10 miles to the south, and, uh, or they, were, they went 10 miles to the south, encountered the bear tracks, tracked them 20 miles to the west, shot the bear, dragged it 10 miles north back to camp. What color was the bear? Well, if you're listening carefully, it would have to be white, because if they went south 10 miles, then west 20 miles, and then north and got back to where they started, the only place that occurs is on the, at, the, at the North Pole, right? Okay, so obviously it's a polar bear, it's a white bear. It's, a, it's a, one of these silly little children's riddles, but it's, it makes a point. There's only one place in our geometry that you could have a bottomless pit. There's only one place it could be. Where would that be? The center of the earth. Because the center of the earth, all directions are up. It's the only place that's bottomless. You you follow me? So if I'm going to be literal. uh, So I happen to suspect, I'll I'll phrase it that way, that that is the, that's what he's talking about, is the the Abuso. Um, Years ago, there was a project called Project Mohole. And the scientists were going to drill through the mantle. You know, the the mantle of the earth, there's a hard crust below below which we know nothing. 
Uh, we infer a lot by echoes, but we don't really know what really makes goes. There's all kinds of theories, but they're how you know of heat and this that and the other thing. But they really don't know what's below the mantle, and so these scientists wanted to drill a hole in the mantle, and they were raising funds to do that. I cannot imagine anything more stupid than drilling a hole in a wall when you don't know what's going to come through the hole. You know what I mean? I mean, that doesn't take a lot of imagination to get terrified of that one. Fortunately, the National Science Foundation was turned down, and that finally died. Uh, the project uh, never went forward, um, and I'm glad it didn't <laughs> for lots of different reasons. But anyway, um, so anyway, this is, this is where the Abuso is here, and uh, that's where the Antichrist came out of, if you remember your studies from chapter 11, chapter 17, and so on. And anyway, this angel laid hold on the dragon. Who's the dragon? Sure, we had him identified back in chapter 12, verse 9. That old serpent, which is the devil uh, and Satan, and he bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And soon after that, strange thing, after that he must be loosed a little season. Um... You know, there are people that run around writing books that say the millennium's already begun. And I love Chuck Smith's rebuttal to that. It's very simple. If the millennium start has already begun, then Satan's chain is too long. You know, so there's no evidence that he's been bound at all. And by the way, I want you to notice, it wasn't Jesus. It didn't take Jesus to bind Satan. Who bound him? An angel. A plain old angel. I think it's important not to disparage the angel, don't misunderstand me, but to realize that Satan is not a counterpart to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the creator. He created the angels. And when it comes time to bind Satan, it was an angel that did it. He had the assignment. He obviously was empowered to do so, and he did so. I think it's important to recognize that. I also get uncomfortable when I hear people pray they mean well, but they pray, we want to bind Satan. Be careful with that one. Be careful with that one. Um, pray the Lord and let him deal with it. Don't, don't, don't go into binding Satan. There's, there's, a, uh, uh, there, there, there's a vocabulary that makes me at least, uh, makes me, for me, my purposes, keeps, makes me uncomfortable. Let's move on. Um, so they cast him in the abuso, shut him in. It's interesting at Gadara. You remember when uh, uh, Jesus encountered the de demoniac that had the legion in them? And uh, they recognized who he was before he presented himself publicly that way. He, they said, have you come to torment us before our time? And they knew that their destiny would be in the Abuso, but they didn't want to go there yet if they could avoid it. And they petitioned him to, set him, to, 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 to put him in this wine, and, and, and he did, which makes you wonder why did he do that? Uh, if nothing else, to show us that these beings are real beings. These aren't euphemisms for some psychiatric disorder. These are uh, sentient, malevolent, powerful beings, but always nevertheless subject to him. So um, there's another issue here about the thousand years. Um, people like to lean on passages uh, where, it, uh, where the scripture says that one day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. And from that, they, they get sloppy or soft or not precise about a thousand years. I think that's a misapplication of that idiom. To God, one day, a thousand years in a day may be equivalent to him because he's outside time. That's the real point that they're making. And I wouldn't make any equivalent. Well, this isn't really a thousand years, only a thousand days or that sort of thing. 
I think that's, uh, that's nonsense. Uh, in Psalm 90, verse 4, and uh, 2 Peter 3.8, uh, the eighth verse of chapter three, uh, they have uh, they use that expression: as "A day with the Lord is a thousand years, and that, a thousand years is a day." Meaning, you know, God's calendar is a different one. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Him relative to the nations and relative to the earth and relative to the very thing that the millennium gets its name. It's six different times in this chapter it mentions the millennium, and so um, there's something else here at, uh, uh, that's going to be interesting. That uh, when He sealed that he should deceive the nations no more. Boy, that's an interesting phrase because that tells us where the nations are getting deceived from. If you think that our government is confused, you can understand who's confused. It's not just the Democrats. (laughs) Okay? Um, So... We move on to verse 4. And I saw thrones, that they, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast. Ah. And neither his image, neither had received his mark upon the name or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Four classes of people here. The Old Testament saints, the church, tribulation martyrs, and tribulation saints living that worship not the beast. There were some survivors, and they're the ones that are going to be populating. So, uh, interesting, interesting issue. But the rest of the dead, talking about the dead now, lived, lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So understand, the, the, the first and second resurrection are not events, they are categories. The first one of the first resurrection was Jesus Christ that began in the garden tomb. And the first fruits required a plurality. The, the, if you understand the Torah, the, fir, the, the feast of the first fruits is plural, the first, first of the harvest. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that, but to be a fulfillment of that, there had to be more than one. And the only place you find this record is in Matthew 27, because the graves were opened, there were lots of others that wandered around to identify themselves. We have that referenced by Matthew. It's, there's no other reference to it in the Scripture, in my awareness. But I believe that's part of what's going on there. But the point is, the first resurrection obviously includes them. It obviously includes the, those that are the, the harpazo. It also includes those that uh, it just, has just mentioned, the, old t- the harpazo before the tribulation, the faithful after the tribulation, after when Christ comes back. That whole category is the first resurrection. In contrast to the second resurrection, which is at the end of the thousand years. And uh, so, so we see two resurrections. That's mentioned in Daniel 12, John 5, Acts 24, and elsewhere. We'll talk a little more about resurrections here in a little bit. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Notice that, priests and reigning. There you again, you got, what are we dealing with when it's priests and reigning? We're talking about the redeemed. They are kings and priests. And uh, no 24 elders here, right? Why? Because 24 elders of the church, we've already, we're already up there. Physical death, separation of the body and the soul. Spiritual death, separation of the soul from God. And you and I can't have no grasp of what that can possibly mean. We'll talk more about that in a minute, too. The millennium is strength. The more you study the millennium, the more questions it raises. It's a tough area to research because there's a lot of other things beside the geopolitical thing we're talking about, the fact that Jesus is running things. The creation has changed. There are physical changes that are reported in Zechariah 4 and Isaiah 35. We get, we get the impression from those that the curse of Genesis 3 is lifted. 
Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, speaks of that. And uh, see, the the, uh, creation is also redeemed. We think of being redeemed as you and I as individuals. There's much more going on than most of us realize because Isaiah tells us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That sounds like it comes from Revelation. It comes from Isaiah 65. The, uh, in uh, Romans 8, we know that the creation groans in travail. Uh, subject, it's, uh, looking for that day when it's no longer be subject to what Paul calls there the bondage of decay. So we think the, the, uh, the entropy laws may be part of that issue. We know that the, from, in the millennium, the earth will be in full knowledge of the Lord. In full knowledge of the Lord. It's going to be a very different time, place. At the same time, it's not eternity. Don't get confused yet. There's still some strange things here. You, most of what we know about this doesn't come from Revelation. It comes from the Old Testament, especially Isaiah 65. There will be death and sin. There won't be death and sin in eternity. There will be during the millennium, under strange conditions. In the millennium, everyone's going to have their own land. There's going to be props. There's going to be uh, ownership. It'll be fruitful, Amos tells us. But it won't be heaven. And there's going to be an eternal state we'll talk about when we get to chapter 21. It's not the new earth. That's yet coming. Isaiah 65 uh, and 66 deals with that. And Peter will talk about it. We'll look at his quote here in a little bit. It's not where righteousness dwells. It's where righteousness is enforced. It's a difference. I remember uh, having an interesting uh, discussion with Alberti Israeli who had a very different view of the, He asked me, what's the, most evil, what's the most evil period of all the dispensations? And his premise was the, the millennium. Why? Because we're without excuse. Satan's bound. There's no shortages. Everybody has the knowledge they need. Everybody has the, 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 the substance they need. There's no injustice. There's perfect justice. You, put, you take all those excuses away and man still, given the chance, rebels at the end. It's almost as if it's a setup to prove that man is a fallen, fallen creature. There's limited evil, but it's judged immediately according to the uh, first uh, dozen verses of Isaiah 11. The longevity is strange. Death apparently, these, now these are inferential. It's, you can ch- check the verses out yourself. But you get the impression that death is for unbelievers only. That's interesting. And you've got 100 years, I think, to make up your mind. Nowhere, nowhere is there a resurrection of millennial saints mentioned. Tribulation saints complete the first resurrection, we're told, right? Apparently, there's no Jewish unbelievers because the Jews do all except the Lord. The, uh, you have to accept by the 100th year or otherwise you die. And the death apparently only occurs among Gentiles. These, I'm not saying this is necessarily true. These are views that you can draw from the hints that we get uh, in the text. I'll leave it to you to probe through that, and uh, I wouldn't spend too much time on it because we'll get we'll, we'll just wait a little while. We'll watch, you know. Um, but there is a passage that you want to be acquainted with when you talk about the millennium, and that's the last uh, nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel, because he there describes a temple. This temple, in no way, is one that's ever been built. Many people treat it allegorically, but that's hard to do because it's so precise in the details it presents. It doesn't sound like an allegory. It sounds like a literal temple. And most scholars view it as the temple that will be built in the millennium. And uh, it's highly detailed, not simply symbolic. All nations are going to worship there. All, not just the Jews. It'll be in Israel, 
and the world will be ruled through Israel, but all the nations come to worship. In fact, if they don't come there for the Feast of Tabernacles, they don't get rain. It's very interesting that in the communities in the Middle East, when Israel was not there, there were barren deserts. Watch to see what kind of rain they get in Gaza now. It's going to be interesting to see. Offerings and sacrifices are resumed. That will have the animal rights people uh, totally unglued. Here's the one that really should bother many people. If you read Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel's description, you'll discover that the millennial temple is only open on Shabbat and the new moon. It's not open on Sunday. These people have the idea that Sunday replaced Saturday. We've got a surprise coming. Worship on Sunday, that's great, no problem, but don't presume that that is Shabbat. Shabbat is the seventh day, not the first day of the week. So I'll let you chew on that one. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, that's a whole other issue. But um, Nan and I do try to observe uh, the seventh day. Well, if you take a look at the temple, let's remember, refresh your memory on the tabernacle. You, me- you remember the tabernacle, 70 feet by roughly 150 if we accept the 18-inch cubit for uh, windage purposes here. And uh, you know that the, uh, you enter one door, you had the altar of sacrifice, and then the laver where you wash, and then you had the holy place itself, this portable building that they set up. And it had one door into which on the right side you had the table of showbread, on the left side you had the menorah, the, the uh, lampstand, and then you had the uh, uh, golden altar, the altar of incense, before you entered the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, roughly 15 uh, cubits cubed, if you will. And uh, if we blow that part of it up, um, we have it's the, the main place called the holy place, the smaller one, the holy of holies, the menorah, the table of showbread, golden altar. And then we had two things, not one, two separate things, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. All of us, me included, in the past have been very sloppy, assuming that, well, the Mercy is just the cover or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. No, they're always described differently in the Scripture. The Holy of Holies is defined as the location of the Mercy Seat, interestingly enough. And there are some reasons I'll come to why I think that's very distinctive and why it's important. There are seven elements in the tabernacle. And Jesus Christ laid claim to every one of these. The Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, John tells us. He says, I am the door. No one comes through, anyone that comes, doesn't come through, by, uh, through me is a thief and a robber. I am the light of the world, he says. I am the bread of life. And the, the altar of incense is where he makes intercession for us. They speaks, it's, the incense speaks of the prayers of the saints. And then, of course, he was our sin bearers, the Ark of the Covenant deals with, and he's the propitiation for our sins as the mercy seat speaks to well, the second temple, where this all gets codified under Solomon, of course, we have the same similar architecture. Um, we have uh, ten tables of showbread and ten lampstands, not just one. Everything, Solomon made everything bigger and, 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 and broader. He had an inner court and an outer court. Outer court had the molten sea, as it's called there, a huge bronze laver, and, a, and the uh, altar of, of offering, the, what's sometimes called the Holocaust altar. And uh, he had... Uh, Ten labors instead of just the one in the outer court. Slight, same architectural concept, but obviously expanded. But it has some things that the tabernacle didn't have. It had a porch and two pillars that didn't hold up anything. Huge pillars, bronze pillars, named Yachin and Boaz in his counsel and in his strength. And uh, these are very, very relevant. And then they also had, the scripture tells us, they had a number of wooden, hidden chambers for the uh, personal storage uh, for, for, for uh, priestly items that were used as closets to hide all, uh, 
idols and bad things. And there's a uh, history there of, of that being discovered and cleansed and so forth. Um, Ezekiel's temple uh, is pr- some seems to be patterned very similar to that. I've gone. I've, I'm now. I've shifted now from having um, west at the uh, east at the bottom to having uh, the uh, south at the bottom, just because it's easier on, on the on the form of the slide here. But uh, Ezekiel's temple is very similar to Solomon's, except it's a little more expansive. There are chambers for singers detailed there. And there's um, a number of priest's chambers detailed there. And uh, there are priest's kitchens uh, detailed there. And uh, we have inner gates and we have outer gates detailed in, in uh, uh, Ezekiel's uh, specifications. So we begin to, as we, go th- as we go through the description in Ezekiel, we realize that what he's talking about is vastly larger than anything that, ever, that has ever been built in history. And, it gets, and uh, there are chambers also in the outer court. And uh, there are people's kitchens in the far corners of the outer court. So you've got priest's kitchens and, and uh, people's kitchens and so forth in, in uh, the Ezekiel account. And not only that, it's not in Jerusalem. Because we get an impression that it's well to the north. In fact, uh, there, the, there's apparently uh, property that puts it uh, literally uh, about 40 miles north of Jerusalem in a, a plot of ground that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, 50 by 50 miles um, in, uh, in size. And uh, the living quarters for the sons of Zedek are up by the temple. The tribe of Levi has the property at a 20 by 50 mile strip between that and Jerusalem. And uh, the other 10 miles in either, at both east and west of Jerusalem is for food growing, according to the, uh, our understanding of the text. Many good scholars have take the text and see it slightly differently, but this is just one uh, reasonably precise rendering of it all. And then the outside of this, there's a portion for the prince. So where does all this fit in? Now there's also water apparently that will come out of, uh, out of the temple, flow to Jerusalem, then from, from there it'll flow to the Dead Sea uh, on the one direction and to the Mediterranean on the other. Those are all things that are described in Ezekiel's account. You stand back from this and you discover that the land around there is granted to the 12 tribes, and that's also very specific. Judah and Benjamin being adjacent and, and the rest of them um, in a prescribed order uh, from Dan. In the tribe of Dan is the first to be listed at the very top in the utter north and so on. And so we talk about God's throne in Isaiah 16. It says, In mercy shall the throne be established. He shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. And this is what James refers to when he quotes from Amos 9 in, his, um, count, in the Council of Jerusalem in, in uh, Acts 15. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So the word throne in this context is all through the scripture. Zechariah 6, speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and shall build the temple of the Lord. And he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and shall be a priest upon his throne. That's very strange that the throne and the priesthood combined, just as it was under Melchizedek. 
And Jeremiah 3, all of us that have heard these strange stories that the uh, Ark of the Covenant is being protected by the Ethiopians or any of these other theories for that matter, we all frequently have always quoted Jeremiah 3.16. It shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land. In those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. So we all quote that verse to just dismiss these strange stories. What we all are guilty of doing of not reading on. Read verse 17. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it. To the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. And he goes on. What's interesting is Jeremiah says they weren't not going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, but he then focuses on the throne. And I don't want to get into all that here tonight. There's other issues to talk about, but I want to call you. This is one of the things that causes us to suspect that what Ethiopia has under their protection, they don't realize it themselves. It isn't the Ark of the Covenant. They, they, they feel they have that, but they don't realize that the real issue is not the Ark, it's the, it's the mercy seat. And uh, in Isaiah uh, uh, 18, where they present it to the Messiah at Zion, which they believe is their destiny, uh, if, they, if they do have it and they do that, it would seem that it fulfills a dozen different prophecies that Ethiopia will present to Zion this peculiar gift that they have, and it's the mercy seat from those old days. And so what would be more appropriate than for him to rule from the very seat that made his kingdom possible? So those are conjectures, but I share them with you. Um, so the ark is no longer the focus of worship in Jerusalem. It will be replaced by the throne of the Lord, as all nations shall be gathered to it. And uh, there's a whole study there you can get into about the mercy seat. I'll let you do it separately. Let's move on to Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Strange, isn't it? And he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Very strange verse. Uh, rarely re- referenced by most writers that deal with the Ezekiel 38 uh, Magog invasion. Uh, many people that, I, uh, that uh, get confused, they feel because it's referenced here in Revelation 20 that the Ezekiel 38 passage fits here, which it clearly does not. The Ezekiel 38 passage is expressly one before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, it's not part of, we, we, not only that, we think it's quite distinct from Armageddon too for a number of specific reasons. But uh, the point is, then what's it doing here? Well, there's two possibilities. The first is that it may be just here idiomatically, that this is by this time a, 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 a proverbial reference, that there's going to be a, an a, a experience very similar to Gog and Magog where they're going to try to invade and God wipes them out. And that may be just an idiom or there may be something deeper here. The, the fact that Magog is still around a thousand years later is not a surprise. The nations do survive. Uh, obviously, they're being deceived, etc. Gog turns out, if you do your homework, in Amos chapter 7, verse 1, in the Septuagint translation of the Greek, there's a translation problem in the first verse of chapter 7 of Amos, in the Masoretic, and thus our, in our English, it doesn't make... It doesn't really make too much sense. But it turns out in the Greek translation, that was three centuries before Christ's ministry, the Greek is more precise and, and, and uh, resolves that, pointing out, in effect, that Gog is the, uh, the uh, king of the, uh, of the locusts. 
Well, Proverbs 30, verse 27 teaches us that the locusts have no king, and that's very important to us when we get to Revelation 9 because we know the locusts there are idioms for demons. But the fact that Gog is the king of those demons is illuminated, is illuminated by the passage in Amos 7.1. So the point is, Gog is a title of one of Satan's biggest um, lieutenants, if I can put it that way. So uh, Gog, for, for, for the demon to survive and come at it again, this is obviously a reprise of some kind of what had happened a thousand years earlier or more uh, with the Magog invasion. So don't let the Gog and Magog illusion here confuse you about what's going on in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You want to study those both carefully, but I think you'll discover they're, they're separate issues. But in any case, um, Satan and his minions are going to uh, uh, deceive the nations, gather them together for battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of saints about and the beloved city. And guess what happened? Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Done. That's exactly what happens in the Magog invasion, although there it might be missiles or nuclear, who knows. But in any case, it has the same effect here in verse 9 of chapter 20. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Rather interesting. When did the beast and the false prophet get thrown into the lake of fire? A thousand years earlier. When Jesus comes back, the two of them were thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone. Satan is put into prison for a thousand years. A thousand years go by. Satan's now out. Leads a rebellion. That's squashed. Satan now is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. His two buddies are still there. The gruesome twosome are still there. Burning. This is not instantaneous. This goes on and on and on. For how long? It says here. Forever and ever and so on. So, um, heavy stuff. Understand what the lake that burns with fire and brimstone was made for. Jesus told it it was made for whom? For the devil and his angels. Anyone that joins them does so because he's rejected God's program for them. Okay. John says, I saw a great white throne. You'll hear that expression used to distinguish it. There's two major judgments. One is called the Bema Seat and one's called the Great White Throne. The Bema Seat is described in Paul's letter to the Corinthians and it's a judgment seat in the same sense that you go before the judges at the Olympics to get your gold medal or bronze medal or whatever. And uh, that's where the, those that are saved receive their rewards for their faithful service. Not for being saved, that's the Christ took care of that. But they do get rewards uh, for their service. And uh, that's what that's all about. This is quite a different thing altogether. We're at the end of the millennium now. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Wow. And there was found no place for them. Things are going on that are hard to visualize. And... Uh, We'll, we'll see what Peter, t Peter talks about that a little bit. We, we have the great white throne judgment. And I saw the dead. That means these are unsaved. These are unsaved because the saved one's been raptured by now. One place 
or resurrected or whatever in any of the previous events. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. You don't want to be judged according to your works. You may want to be rewarded for the good ones, but you don't want to be judged according to your works. Anybody wants, anybody wants to get into legalism better read very carefully the curses, not just the blessings. Okay. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Now it says hell here. Don't get confused. This is Hades. And we'll talk a little bit about the Hades is, is the Greek equivalent, essentially, to what in Hebrew was Sheol. It's called the grave. Um... Oh, go on. Uh, the hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. In other words, Hades is now over. Hades is a temporary place. There's a good side and a bad side. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they are both here in verse 14, cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, a paradigm of death. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but let's go it again. The separation of the soul and the body is what we call physical death, where the soul and the body are separate. There is a, a second death, the separation of the soul and the spirit. It's a second death. That's, that's what he's trying to prevent, prevent us from getting into. If you're born again, Jesus is, your second death comes first. Jesus is taking care of that. If you're not born again... You, in other words, you want to reverse the order, and you reverse the order by being born again. Anyway, verse 15 of chapter 20. Whosoever was found, not found, written in the book of life, was cast in the lake of fire. Now, the book of life is not on works. The book of life is whether you're in the Lamb's book of life. That's, that, that, that's uh, probably not as clear. You want to read those carefully. There's two books. Those that are judged by their works are cast in the lake of fire. Your works are inadequate. You want to make sure your name is written in the other book, the book of life. What happens when you die? This is one reason this is a tough chapter because it really hits some of these things head on. Is there really an afterlife? What is heaven like? Is there really a hell? We, these are very uncomfortable topics for many. What is the nature of eternity? What's the nature of the reality we find ourselves in? We know we're in a digital simulation now in modern science. So what's all going on? It's astonishing to realize that there's been some recent research that there are many changes in our culture, of course, but most people have retained surprisingly traditional views about death and life after death. Many people believe that heaven and hell really exist, that everyone has a soul that continues after death, yet over 50 million Americans are uncertain about their personal fate. See, on the one hand, there's a widespread... The research shows that many people in their heart of hearts realize these things exist on the one hand, but they have no certainty about their own relationship to them. And about, about two-thirds of the American believes they go to heaven. Uh, one in four admitted they have no idea what will happen after they die. And uh, they have no idea. And uh, less than half of that 1% expect to go to hell, naturally. Um, one in 20 believes that he or she will come back as some other form of life, like 5%. Same proportion believe they simply, some believe that roughly they cease to exist. There's an annihilation theory. There's some that cease to exist, you know, think they cease. There's about 5% that think they're coming back in another life form. There's a small percent that talk about reincarnation. And I love to, I'm indebted to uh, uh, Gail Irwin, 
uh, for a, a poem about reincarnation. And I never want to miss a chance to give you the poem. Um, what is reincarnation? A cowboy asked his friend. It starts, his old pal told him, when your life comes to an end. They comb your hair, they wash your neck, they clean your fingernails, and they put you in a padded box away from life's travails. Now the box in you goes into the hole that's been dug into the ground. Reincarnation starts in when you're planted neath that mound. Them cl- <laughs> you know it's coming. Them clods melt down just like the box and you who is inside, and that's when you begin your transformation ride. And in a while, the grass will grow upon your rendered mound till someday upon that spot a lonely flower soon is found. And then a horse may wander by and graze upon that flower that once was you and now has become your vegetated bower. Now the flower and the horse done eat, along with his other feed, makes bone and fat and muscle essential to the steed. But there's a part that he can't use. So it just passes through. And there it lies upon the ground, this thing that once was you. (laughs) And if perchance I should pass by and see this on the ground, I'll stop a while and ponder at this object that I found. I'll think about reincarnation and life and death and such. But I'll come away concluding why you ain't changed that much. Wallace McRae, the cowboy story. But, uh, so that's about all we'll say about reincarnation. Uh, it's interesting, if we examine the beliefs of those that believe they're going to heaven, 43% believe because they've confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. That's pretty good. 15% because they've tried to obey the Ten Commandments. Another 15% because they are basically a good person. And... Uh, about 6% because God loves all people and will not let them perish. So that's the profile of, of the research. Now, it's interesting that among the born-again Christians, 10% believe that people are reincarnated after death. 29% claim it's possible to communicate with the dead. These are contradictions, of course. Uh, obviously, 50% contend that a person can earn salvation based on good works. 50% born-again Christians have it according to the research results. And many believe there are multiple options for gaining uh, entry you know, into heaven. And so, uh, see, many have redefined grace to assume that God's so eager to get people saved that he'll compromise his holiness. And uh, that's, that's where they fall. Atheists and agnostics are also confused. 50% believes every person has a soul. Heaven and hell do exist, and that there is a life after death. This is among agnostics. 12% believe that accepting Jesus Christ probably makes life after death possible. And, of course, many feel the labels are not descriptive. Indeed, they're not. There's evidence of many simplistic views from novels and movies among everybody, actually. Well, let's try to cut through all this and find out what the Bible really says. And much of what we know about this comes from just one disclosure by the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 16. It's not a parable. It's an actual case study. In parables, people don't have names. This is real people. These are real, pe- these are real people. Luke 16 says there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Well, it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abram's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, and now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then the rich man, then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Notice that he's conscious, he's aware, he remembers his brothers. You see, this is not, this is, this is, there's a great deal of insight that comes from all of this. And uh, he, he makes no rebuttal. He doesn't argue that I don't deserve it. He seems reconciled to the fact that this is just. That's what's so bizarre here to many. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And it's rather interesting. It's obviously a, a coincidence, but the Holy Spirit uses puns. It's interesting that there was a guy, not the same one, there was a guy named Lazarus that was raised from the dead. And as a result, they plotted to kill him. That's also in, in, the, in the scripture. Interesting. See, this gives us a perspective of what we'll call, for lack of another term, the underworld. The place called Hades in the Greek, Sheol in the, in the uh, Hebrew. There is a place of torment and Abram's bosom. There's apparently two compartments. The rich man was in the place of torment, not because he was rich, but because he was in the place for other reasons. It, it is intended to draw a contrast here. And then... Uh, Abraham's bosom is a good place, apparently, and that's where this Lazarus was uh, uh, comforted. There is also an impassable gulf between these two, Jesus tells us. We also infer that the darkest, deepest part of this is a place called the Abuso, and uh, it's uh, the bottomless pit. And uh, as I say, I suspect it might actually be geocentric. But in any case, I'm pretty weird that way. I might mention something else. Uh, uh, there are scientists, by the way, that think the universe might be geocentric. That sounds very strange. You think, gee, Copernicus resolved that years ago. No, it turns out when they tried to do the Michelson-Morley experiment, which proved there was no ether, because it, it turns out if you try to do it today, you don't get zero. You get near zero. And so there's a, there are papers of people that speculate that the universe might be geocentric, which I, I, I haven't really evaluated them yet, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised is my point. But let's move on. Um, what we have here, then, is uh, the... Uh, the bottomless pit might be equivalent to Tartarus. That's a term that only Peter uses, a, a place that's as far below Hades as, as the earth is below heaven, is the way he describes it. So, so Tartarus is, is probably a synonym for this abuso. That's a conjecture, though. But essentially, uh, uh, the man was fully conscious. He had memory. He remembered his brothers. He could speak. He's in pain. He also has desires. That may be the biggest part of the pain. And the lack of hope, of course. His eternal destiny was irrevocably fixed. No changes here. This is without hope. He knew that what he was experiencing was fair and just. He also knew that his brother... He knew what his brothers needed to do to avoid this, simply to repent. He understood that. See, he was not yet in hell as we think of it, the lake of burns fire and brimstone. He's in... Or Gehenna is the proper term, perhaps. This is Hades, but that's coming. 
But what happens when Jesus was crucified, he goes down there and he takes his home. Okay, that's, that's the perception we get by putting all the, this all together. In Second Peter, excuse me, First Peter 3, For Christ also had once suffered for sins, the just, uh, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. When it says preach, don't assume it's necessarily seeking repentance. Preaching is also equivalent, it's declaring. It's, it's, it's declaring the victory. Uh, unto the spirits in prison, which some sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah when the ark was in preparing, wherein few, that is eight, souls were saved by water. So it's an allusion back to Genesis 6 and so on. Isaiah 61, remember Jesus, his mandate, uh, when he read in, in the synagogue of Capernaum, he read from Isaiah this passage. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek and he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison of them that are bound and to, pre- to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And, the, and uh, that's where he stopped by that comma. He didn't read the day of vengeance of our God. And that's obviously what is happening now. And uh, in Matthew 27, we have this strange illusion at the resurrection. The graves were opened and many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose. There apparently was a resurrection of saints then, part of the first resurrection, to make it a plurality so it would fulfill the specifications for the feast of firstfruits. And came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. So this is part of the presentation of Christ's victory that his resurrection uh, proclaims. Many people assume somehow that there will be a nihilism. This would imply then too that there's conditional immortality? I don't think so. Matthew, uh, Matthew 10 says, Fear not them that kill the body, but which are able to kill the soul, but rather fear them which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But the word, be careful of that word destroy. It's actually to be delivered into eternal misery. It doesn't mean destroy like annihilate. That's what some people use this verse to support a view of annihilism. No, that's not what it does. It's used. The, word, the translation destroy in that sense is misleading. The word in the Greek means to be delivered up to eternal misery. And uh, so for what it's worth. Nowhere is that word used to mean to annihilate. These shall go, Matthew says, these shall go away to eternal punishment but the righteous unto eternal life. Same term is used in both places. Eternal life and eternal punishment. Same word. Everlasting. Eternal. Many of them sleep in, in Daniel 2. Many of them sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Same Hebrew word in both cases. So you can't, you can't escape the reality there. Back in Revelation 14, you may recall, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture unto the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the holy lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. They have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast's image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Revelation gets back to chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived her was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented forever and ever. Okay, so in the next session, we'll take the rest of the book. 22 is a very short chapter. 21 and 22 next time. Eternity and a wrap-up of the book. So for the next session, read chapters 21 and 22. It's also a good occasion to review all your notes for the entire book as we wrap it up in the next session. God bless you.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can see more podcasts on anchor.fm forward slash Bible 126. Also, there is a feature there where you can sponsor or make a donation to this page. Thank you and stay tuned for more episodes.